opposites could go. All right. So Joe uh, had a question about the the nematodes. The there are several things to be said about the nematod. Number one is, is that it doesn't appear anywhere in the suttas. That in fact, the definition of the word uh, nematod comes from the old, old practice that, the, uh, that was common before the time of the Buddha. And that the nimitta actually came from people taking a disc that was uh, maybe six, eight inches across, made of mud, like a mud pine. Or it was alternately a set of leaves that were stitched together so that over time those leaves would turn from green, perhaps to yellow, and then to brown. While the, the meditator is working with those uh, objects of meditation. So what they would do is they would take it and look at it and look at all the fine features of the med pie, the little rocks and stones and pieces of grub and whatever in there, and then close their eyes and try to reimagine that disc. And then they'd open their eyes again and recheck it and close their eyes again so that they could get a very, very good mental uh, photo. This is actually a training for photographic memory to be able to look at something until you can really, really see it in detail and remember that stuff. Close your eyes and then repicture it in as close to the reality as. Uh, you could, then you open your eyes again and re-feature it and re-look at it. Now, over time, the mud disc is going to break and fall apart and whatnot. And so this is actually an active process of creating that nematode. Um, so this is where the idea of the nematode comes from, that it's a secondary thing, or it is, at, let us say, a touch sensation that after the touch is finished, we still have an afterglow of that touch. This is what the nemata is. Um, you could say then that if you have heard uh, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, and everybody has, so now everybody's playing a little of it in your head, that's a nemata. Okay, it's your remembered thing that comes from reality. Now, how that is used in Anapanasati uh, comes from a much later time. The uh, the whole idea about um, Anapanasati originally was to get the mind fit for work. In that regard, it's experiencing the whole body, getting the body at rest and whatnot like that. But actually, um, we could use the nimitta um, as an advanced technique, let us say, for going into the, <clears throat> to the second jhana, for instance. And that is, is that you're paying attention to the breath so closely that at the end of the out-breath, you can still feel the touch of the air coming in and out. 
this is also uh, in conjunction with or used uh, often with monks who take on the mantra of Budo so that they say boo on the in-breath and do on the out-breath and that that's the only thought that's in the mind is that one word boo all on the in-breath a very long boo and then a very long do is on the out-breath and then at the end of the out-breath we pay attention to the fact that the only thing that's left is that nimitta and that there is nothing left of the thoughts and so we're actually using the nimitta and the um, <clears throat> the long breath and the mantra in order to go into the second jhana. And this is a training that can be referred to as the training of <clears throat> or the skill of development of going out of first jhana. Okay, so we have a skill of getting into first jhana easily, then we have the skill of sustaining the first jhana, and then we have the skill of coming out of the first jhana. Now, the, uh, if the skill is to, to get into it and then to maintain it, then obviously coming out of the first jhana is easy enough to do because you just simply can't sustain it. But that's not a skill just coming out of first jhana. The skill of coming out of first jhana is to be able to go into the second jhana and that we use these techniques to help put gaps in the mind. So this is a fairly advanced technique and that in fact, it's not ever necessary. That you can in fact uh, go into second jhana without that technique. This is just one of the things that is that is useful when uh, the mind is, let us say, ready for that kind of thing. Um, but I would suggest that the student gain the skill of sustaining that first jhana before they try doing this stuff with the nimitta. Does that answer your question? Uh, Joe, do you have some more questions about it? No, that I mean, that answers it. I mean, he went into it a little bit in the book about like kind of shifting the nimitta and having a little bit of control over it. And um, and, you know, that it's an imaginary thing and things like this. But um, yeah, that 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 clarifies it for me. It, it lines up with what you're saying. Um, that that's kind of the what he was the the point that he was getting at was that it would relax the body and that it was a conditioning agent for the body becoming relaxed um so he was referring it to it to get into first john i believe um but i'm not i'm not sure really so yeah. i don't know yes it could be but that would be let us say sort of the last resort um uh, or let us say, even in that case, a, a, a more advanced practice, that it would not be useful so much into getting into the first jhana, but sustaining it and then developing it further than that would be more useful for it, not getting into it. However, it's very important to talk about that uh, step four of Anapanasati, which is the relaxation. 
because there are only a few suttas that mention the body's relaxation in conjunction with the first jhana. That in fact, if you add the relaxed body, that makes it there are six uh, uh, elements of the first jhana besides the original five. And that is, is that complete freedom from hindrances. The second one is then uh, the sukha and the piti and the mind that is applied on the wholesome and sustained on the wholesome. And then you can add that sixth item, which would be, and the body's relaxed. And when you, uh, so uh, that's kind of interesting that uh, even in the Anapanasati Sutta, it does cover all six of them. And that the idea is, is that the mind is now in the first jhana fit for work to do the job of Vipassana, which is actually the fourth tetrad. So we, we work to get the body, the feelings, and the mind in gear, get it unified, get it fit for work. And then we go off into uh, the fourth tetrad, uh, which uh, let us say it's kind of interesting that the tenth, uh, that the Satipatthana Sutta number 10 and the Anapanasati number 118 seems to have different perspectives on the fourth tetrad of uh, the Dhamma uh, Nupassana. And so this, in fact, uh, leads in very well then with um, uh, Jeff's question, um, that the Mahasi method is basically um, a method that comes out of uh, the fifth century or the fourth century AD much later than the time of the Buddha, where the idea is, is that one can take a shortcut and not really deal with uh, the first three and get the mind in the second jhana or first jhana that all one needs to do is just start noting what is. The danger with that is, is that if the mind is done according to the Buddha of having the mind in first jhana, that means that the mind is actually fit for work and that the hindrances are gone and that the only thing that there is worth noting is wholesome stuff. So that we can ob observe things wholesomely as they arise and they pass away. And there's also a long list of things that are worthy of noting that are. Uh, hang on a second. Robert, in the car, can you settle down? You're all over the place making the screen jump. Thank you. Oh, he's gone now. All right. So, uh, going back to the issue of, are we going to practice a wet method or a dry method? Because the dry method of the Mahasi is let's go ahead and do the Dhamma Nupassana without having the mind fit for work. And also, let's go ahead and do the Dhamma Nupassana. Only now we have a whole lot of stuff to look at other than the stuff that we should be looking at. So what are we going to be looking at in the Mahasi method is just whatever hindrances are there. Well. Uh, 
in the Satipatthana Sutta, in the fourth tetrad, the Dhamma Nupassana, or the objects of the mind, it actually gives a list of objects of the mind that are to be looked at. And then in the Anapanasati Sutta, that Dhamma Nupassana is talking about how we should look at those objects. So, in the Satipatthana Sutta, they go in order of uh, the things to be noticed is, number one, the hindrances. And as it's talking about each of the hindrances, it says, and this is to be removed. And that's the first part of the uh, uh, that section of the Sutta is the hindrances. And so when a meditator starts meditating, that's the first thing he's going to find is the hindrances. But then those are to be removed so that the other things that can be looked at are in order. One is um, the, the five aggregates, looking at the body, looking at the feelings, looking at the mind. But we're doing this uh, either from an ordinary beginner's position or we're looking at it from the position that the mind is already now fit for work. So uh, if we're looking at the five aggregates from the position of the mind is already free from the hindrances, then we can see things uh, interrelate uh, <clears throat> in the sense that there is no self here. But if we are doing the five aggregates while there are hindrances there, then obviously then those five aggregates will also come up with um, a self, because there's a self in those hindrances. And so the actual dry method is, is slow. That the, the real difference is, is whether or not the practice is going to be done that when the hindrances are seen, are we going to remove them? Are we going to keep looking at them and keep inspecting them? and keep saying this hindrance fits with that hindrance and that hindrance fits with this other hindrance over here. And so now I'm just chasing my tail around looking at one hindrance after the other. Going kind of deeper and deeper into a selfish kind of practice. This is what we would call deep meditation. To where the real meditation that we're thinking about that has these jhanas, these are bright or higher meditations rather than dullness. That if the mind still has hindrances, then we will go off into things like dark nights of the soul or whatever like that. Well, that's it. <clears throat> Think about it is the dark night of the soul is nothing but really heavy duty uh, five aggregates with a self in it. Oh, poor me. So uh, the first part of the practice then should be, in fact, removing these five hindrances. And then after the mind has the five hindrances removed, then when we look at the five aggregates, we're seeing the five aggregates without a self. Now that the five aggregates are wholesome, as opposed to looking at the five aggregates while there's still hindrances and selfishness involved with it. So then the next group would be the seven factors of enlightenment that are mentioned both in the Satipatthana and in the Anapanasati Sutta, as well as the ending right. 
of the uh, Satipatthana Sutra says that the objects are going to be taking is in fact the Four Noble Truths in the sense of is this dukkha or is this not dukkha? Okay, so before so you go into that, I, I have a question regarding the term uh, getting the mind fit for work. Mm -hmm. Like, um, could it be also said that um, getting it fit for work is um, practicing gladly and then before that, before removing the five hindrances, it's practicing with some, like with more effort in quotations, because my doubt is if it's not fit for work, then how can you work it into being fit for work? Well, if you do have a mind that's not fit for work and you're working with it anyway, you're not going to be nearly as productive now, are you? No, yeah, but you're saying that to get it fit for work, it's like the same uh, right effort than you use when it's already like more clean. Well, that's true, but one is skillful because you've done it, and the other one is developing the skill because you're in the process of doing it. Okay, so first one is, is that you're actually removing the hindrances because you're catching them as they come up. As they come up, you catch it and throw it out. This is then getting the mind fit for work because you're cleaning it out so that you can see things directly. To where with the Mahasi method, they don't do the cleaning out, they just keep looking. Well, if they keep looking, all they're going to find is a mixture of wholesome and unwholesome thoughts. It's so like if you have a if you have a plate of food, it's first like getting the dirt out and then eating. Or what? Yeah, right, exactly. That you in fact uh, you don't take a banana right off the tree and eat it. You peel it first. The same thing is true maybe with an apple or an orange. That you don't just eat the orange, peel and all, you peel it first. So that would be a way of thinking about the mind, that the mind is pure, but it is encrusted with all of these hindrances. So the first thing that we need to do is to peel away those hindrances to get down to the fruit. Now you can eat the banana or you can eat the, the orange skin and all, but... <laughs> 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 so you get the point with that. All right. So this is the the, um, the issue <clears throat> with the Mahasi method. Now, one of the things that we can say <clears throat> about the Mahasi method is that the language that is used is very, very fifth century AD. It's not a modern version of what's really going on. And so you have the, uh, a lot of poly that's mixed into it also uh, that is not well understood. And so uh, many of the students get kind of confused about the kind of language that's used. Uh, an example of that would be Dukanana. All right, and that sounds like a really fancy kind of word. No, it just really means look at what you're doing and you'll find something that's there, you throw it out. 
But with the way that it's practiced in the West, the Duke Anonymy, you've got to look at the Duke and really see the Duke and really, really get involved with the Duke and know it very well. And it seems like that some meditators take a long time and then they go through a dark night of the soul, they say, and they get really disgusted with their practice and they find themselves in a really bad state. And then they decide that I've got to do something new. And so they redouble their efforts and get back into the Four Noble Truths and the Eight Four Noble Path, which means already now at step 11 of their 16 stages of insight is where they should have started in the first place. In other words, everybody before they've ever come to uh, the practice of meditation has already had a dark night of the soul. That's why they're in meditation. They're already disgusted with their life. That's why they're looking for something new. They're looking for a psychologist or a pill or, you know, oxycodone or uh, maybe some heroin or something. Uh, Alcohol. We're always out there looking for something because we're completely dissatisfied with our life. So if we would start from that point, then the next step would be where the real starting point is, is where the Buddha starts, which is the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Noble Path, which is on the 16 stages of insight, is step 12. There's no reason to go through fear, misery, disgust, um, uh, despair, the great desire to get out of it, a longing to get out of it, and then the redoubling of the effort to actually practice correctly. All of those stages in there are stages that we've already been through. There's no reason to repeat them, let us say, a hundredfold in a practice called meditation. Or in fact, it's basically just a, a failure of meditation. But there is some advantage to it. And the advantage is that if someone does come out of the dark night of the soul, they come out of the dark night of the soul kind of as a lion. Hey, if you can handle the dark night of the soul, you can handle anything. And so it does have that advantage to it. It's a working method. It just takes years and years of hard, strenuous effort that is one failure after another after another. Never mind, pick yourself up, dust yourself off. And in that process, they develop some skills, the skill of sati, because they keep noting and keep noting and keep noting. And now the only real thing that needs to be done is that very trick that we start with in Anapanasati, and that is change the mind from an unwholesome state to a wholesome state. Then when we do the investigation, or then when we do the uh, Dhammanupasana, we're doing it uh with objects that are all wholesome only wholesome objects so let's go through a list of what objects then would be wholesome that would be worth looking at once the mind is in first jhana and fit for work well the first thing that we can look at is is that uh if we're actually doing uh the arising and the passing away in that sense, the arising would be the arising of the wholesome thoughts and the passing away of the unwholesome thoughts. And so we throw those thoughts out and we bring in new thoughts. And so this 
bringing up this is this is a Nietzsche. We actually create the change. It's not that a Nietzsche means that we are, uh, let us say, um, the victims of change. The reality is, is that we are the creators of the change. And that you can change things, that you can have things pass away and something new arise. So if we are doing that, then now we have new objects to look at in the sense of rising and passing away. We have the ability to look at the, at the mind in the sense of applying it, to keep applying the mind to the wholesome. And so that would be an object of can I keep coming back? In other words, where's my sati? Can I keep applying the mind? Can I keep applying the mind? Can I keep applying the mind over and over again? So this would be a wholesome object then of the meditation. The second one then would be, can I sustain it? Can I keep the mind in the wholesome state? Another um, object of meditation that could be taken this wholesome would be then sukha itself. How do I feel? Do I feel good or what? Wow, this is really good. I can do this. And then another object of, of uh, meditation would be to take pity as the object of meditation. Now, when you actually begin to take pity as your object of meditation, rather than the applied and sustained thought, that you could think of paying attention to the applied and sustained thought is the same thing as like guarding the mind. This would be the kind of practice that we would have that helps guard the mind would be like chasing the breath. And what we mean by chasing the breath is that the in-breath, we begin by losing the front part of the nose. And as we're continuing to inhale, we bring the mind down into the belly. And then as we breathe out, we take that uh, mind and start pulling it back out so that we uh, visit the throat, we visit the back part of the neck, at that turn in the head and then come out and then at the end of the out breath we would rest on the nose tip which would then be for the nematode so this would be the chasing and the following of the breath that would be <clears throat> useful in getting the minds settled down and by taking the object of pity then we would lose the object of applied and sustained thought and by taking the pity as the object or taking a really wild, great sense of feeling good and, and pay attention to that. By doing that, we're no longer thinking, we're no longer applying and sustaining the thought. So that would be then by taking the object of pity, that's the second jhana. That we actually go into the second jhana depending upon what object of meditation that we take. And so pity, or the feeling of uh, um, excellent feelings of how good can the body feel is an example of, of that. <clears throat> okay, so the next object then that we would take and then look at it. We're going to actually down through the, the, the features of the first jhana are the objects that we're going to take one by one as they're noted. Um, Robert, who I don't know whether he's still on or not, uh, was asking me about a sutta number 111. This is, in fact, uh, the 111 that I'm uh, looking at is the, the sutta that talks about what are the wholesome objects that are worthy of investigation 
once the mind is fit to work. Oh, Robert rejoined, okay. So Robert, we're beginning to talk now about the uh, uh, Sutta number 111 that you had curiosity about last week. So the- Excellent, uh, looking forward. Right, so as we're taking on objects, one at a time, we're actually looking at various features of the first jhana. In other words, we take an object of, is the body relaxed? We take the object of, is the body feeling really good? We're taking the object of, do I feel safe and secure and comfortable? All right, and so these are then the, the objects that we take, and this will take us up through the third jhana. Now, in the fourth jhana, we begin to look at more details of the way that the mind works or the bottom. So in the fourth jhana, after we've taken sukha, the next object that we're going to be taking is upeka, and upeka is in fact even more relaxed than sukha. So you could say that uh, sukha and uh, upeka and uh, piti are <clears throat> in a continuum. In other words, how good can you feel? And that how good can you feel is, is that is, is this a good feeling that's really elated, really uh, joyful, really excited, really full of energy? Or is this some uh, someplace in the middle where it's just easygoing, happy satisfaction? Yeah, we got this wired. And then the other end of the scale, the upeka, is when we're so satisfied that there's really no movements to make, no place to go. Everything is just uh, down to easy, easy, easy. Okay, so this is also an object to be taken is how good and satisfied and quiet can we become. So this is in the beginning of the fourth jhana. This is where the breathing, by the way, gets very, very shallow, but long long but shallow in the sense of long slow in breath and long slow out breath there's also other things that have to do with the sensations an example of that would that we begin to lose contact with the body itself and so the body feels like it is flying through the air it feels like that it's 60 or 70 feet tall. We feel that we're actually being freed from gravity itself. And so we lose a sense of perspective that's in the body. In other words, the body uh, has already been attuned to, um, and you can, <clears throat> gravity itself. The body has become attuned to gravity that in fact, when you feel guard, when you feel tired, that means that gravity is stronger for you than it was when you feel fit. But the gravity is the same, but it's there. So our perspective of the gravity changes when we're tired or, or whatnot. Well, when we're in the fourth jhana, the sensation of gravity itself seems to be very, very light. And so the meditator will feel like that he is uh, floating. Feels like that he, the body is huge like that. So this is a change of perspective, but this perspective that we're talking about now is actually working at the level of um, uh, perception. 
that we perceive things differently because our perception is getting kind of loose. And so we can take then uh, various things as the as an object. One of them would be perception itself and how perception relates to consciousness. And so one of the ways that they talk about it is um, neither uh, perception nor non-perception. And what that means is, is that perception has gotten very, very light so that the only thing that we are perceiving is what we're conscious of which is the senses. And when we are capable of doing that with perception, that means that there's no feelings that are going to arise. If there's no perception, then there is no internal object. And if there's no internal object, then that means that there's nothing that can contact us to raise feelings. And so this is kind of the end of it. This is what it talks about with Sariputta. At the end of the Sutra number 111 is when it talks about that when he gets down to being able to interrupt perception itself, then that's the end of feelings. And there's nothing really left to do other than uh, enjoy the state. And so uh, when we are practicing the, uh, the method according to the Buddha, we're practicing uh, going from one wholesome state to another wholesome state to another wholesome state, and we go from state to state, depending upon the object that we take. But all of the objects that we're taking are wholesome. Now, the Mahasi method has this kind of thing built into it also, but the way that it's taught in the West is missing. There's several things that are missing. One is the importance of the body, that in fact of the Western Mahasi method seems to kind of ignore the body altogether, even though it's part of the Satipatthana and they, they think it is. But I think that part of that has to do with, there's some confusing things in the Satipatthana Sutta, like the charnel ground meditations and whatnot like that. And so that takes the emphasis off the body that in fact, if they have the Satipatthana only, then they're going to be missing some of the important things that are going to be in other suttas, that you're not going to find one sutta that's going to give you everything. And so we have to take the Anapanasati Sutta and the Satipatthana Sutta and the Great Forty or the Four Noble Truths, and excuse me, the Eightfold Noble Path Sutta. And then we can begin to see that, oh, we have to, practice these things in combination. And so the uh, is we find then that the body is the foundation and that if we're going to take a, an object of meditation with the body, then we have to do it by seizing that object. Now, this is one of the things that we find very interesting in the old literature from the Mahasi. Mahasi himself talks about how important it is to seize the object. And in fact, they even use in, in the uh, English translation out of the Burmese, is, is to fall upon the object. Very interesting. Falling upon the object the way that thieves will fall upon a traveler on the road. They'll jump on him. Okay. So, our <clears throat> this, by the way, is very, very um, integrated 
with the way that Bhikkhu Dasa teaches and also the suttas themselves. And this is part of the Mahasi point also that you have to grab the object, you have to seize the object, you have to take control of your object of meditation. And yet in modern uh, Mahasi method in the West, they only merely talk about noting the breath, not actually doing something with it, not actually seizing the object. And so that's the thing that's kind of missing in the Mahasi method is this quality of seizing the object. And the question is, well, what object then is that is it to be seized? If they are not seizing the object, but just merely noting it, then whatever object that they have, it's not a very good meditation practice that the actually uh, the quality is, is to seize the uh, the object. And so in the breathing, then the seizing of the breathing would be to start to control the breath, to make sure that the breathing is long and deep and slow. If you're going to seize the mind as the object, then that means that we have to actively remove the hindrances. If we're going to uh, take a joy as uh, the object or hello, Damadas, good to see you. If we're going to take then uh, sukha as an object, we really have to seize that sukha and really get into it. In other words, really talk ourselves into and start to feel comfortable. To really seize that object and become satisfied. I have a question on that, but I see two hands raised. Or, wow. Oh, yes. Okay. So we've got hands raised. Who, who first? I'll throw mine out there real quick. I was just wondering what the phenomenology of, um, like, what does it feel like? And is there any way we could know? Like, is it basically just becoming very interested? And I know, I know what satisfied feels like, but basically, like, we just kind of that takes over our attention and it's it's what we're thinking about and then we just continue to kind of feed into that loop of like attention this feels good and then it just keeps growing is that kind of what it means yes and another quality of it is is that in the mahasi method many of the students have the idea of noting this and then noting that and then noting whatever comes up right which is jumping around which means that we are actually um how to say it uh we're not actually seizing the objects we're just whatever comes up we go chase after that until something else comes up to where when we're actually seizing the object that means that we stay on it so the example then would be oh i'm noting the mind applied i'm noting the mind sustained i'm noting the mind of uh, the sukha i'm noting the mind the pity that's not the way to practice when we seize the object that means sukha 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 how's my sukha where's the sukha where's my fearlessness yeah there it is i can see that fearlessness yeah i can feel it all right i feel that comfort in other words we start seizing that object of um satisfaction and we really promote it. We develop it as a skill because we seized it as the object. 
which is, you know, this is a really nice practice to when you've got nothing else to do except to, if you want to use the word concentrate, concentrate on how good you feel, concentrate on how safe you feel and keep coming back to, I feel safe, I feel safe, I feel secure, I feel good, I feel nice, I feel, I feel, yeah. <laughs> okay, so this is the way that we practice that, that is kind of missing in the Mahasi method of the noting, because they're not actually teaching the students to seize the object or to grab hold of that object and hang on to it, and keep going back to it and going back to it over and over and over again, so as to develop it as a skill. To where the noting is this, 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 note this, note that, note this, note that, all over the place. Here, we're actually taking an object and holding on to it. And so the first one that we're going to be holding on to is the breath. To be able to take a breath, a long breath in and a long breath out, and then another long breath in and then another long breath out. And so we get that in a rhythm, but we keep it going. And then we can also work with this tight little loop of one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four in that sequence, which is actually this one, two, three, four sequence is the eightfold noble path in the sense of remember to investigate, then to take the right effort to change what's in the mind. That's the grabbing of the mind, seizing that as an object, and making sure that the thought is a wholesome thought. And then we take the right effort to seize the breath and to make sure that the breath is a long, deep breath. And after we do that, then we go back and we do these four things over again so that we remember to take a long, deep breath. We remember to look at the mind and to change it into the wholesome over and over and over again. This is what then brings on that first jhana. So in fact, you could think of it this way, it's kind of funny, is the very skills that we practice to bring on the first jhana are exactly the same skills that we will use to sustain the first jhana. And then it's that very same set of skills that we will use to uh, come out of the second jhana with skill into the higher jhanas. But it's those same skills that we have to develop right from the very beginning. What are the skills? Sati, to wake up. The skill of investigation, to really look at what's going on. To seize, in fact, your investigation is kind of an object that you're really going to investigate. But it's not um, investigating this dukkha and that dukkha and this dukkha and that dukkha. It's investigating is this dukkha, is this dukkha, is this dukkha. And if it is, then we change it into it's not dukkha. So we keep gladdening the mind. And we can do that with uh, little thoughts like, wow, I don't have to think about that. Wow, I don't have to do anything right now. So any job that you give yourself to do in your mind when you're sitting there in meditation, all of a sudden, oh, I've got to write the boss an email. Then you have the sati, wait a minute. I don't have to think about writing the boss an email right now. I can just relax right now. And so I'm going to keep coming back to relax, to relax, to relax, to relax, to relax. So this is the way that we receive that object of relaxation. 
So this is one of the biggest qualities of the uh, Mahasi method that's missing is the quality of how do we relate to our object of meditation? Do we just kind of observe it from uh, an easygoing kind of place, which is where the Mahasi group starts, but then they get deeper and deeper into a struggle of trying to see what's going on because they haven't taken the right attitude about the fact that they've got to actually seize the object and hold it. So we got another question coming. Uh, yeah, so do you have to like consciously move your attention in the jhana from um, uh, Piti Sukha to Sukha to equanimity or does it just happen automatically? Um, let us say it happens with choice. And so it's your choice. And that um, an example would be that um, for a long time in the beginning of the practice, we would want to make sure that we're focusing on, can I apply the mind? Can I sustain the mind? Can I keep coming back to the object? Can I keep coming back? Can I keep applying sati over and over and over again? This would be the beginner's way of doing it. Once we got that going, then later we would take sukha as the object in the sense of how good can I feel? Later we would take another object, uh, but the beginnings of objects would be apply the mind, apply the mind, apply the mind, apply the mind, then sustain the mind, then sustain the mind, sustain the mind. And when we mean sustain the mind, that means sustain the mind in wholesome thoughts or gladdening the mind. And so we keep sustaining that in the gladdening of the mind, but then we begin to feel good because we've been talking ourselves into feeling good. So now we're going to take the object of how good we feel. And we keep applying that over and over again. How good do I feel? 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 Right? These are the states that are missing in the Mahasi method because they haven't gotten that uh, point about you've got to seize the object and to do something with it. That is uh, that merely noting doesn't make anything. I mean, it's almost like a child who is taking piano lessons that, yeah, he goes and he stares at the piano. <laughs> but you're not going to learn how to play the piano by staring at it. Yes, Scott. Oh, um, this is kind of off topic, but I just wanted to attest to um, Don Morado's, uh He solved my dating life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My my. Uh, Heck yeah. I, I I did the 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 Sadie Hawkins method, and uh, she came back. So like, I didn't even like. <laughs> I didn't even want her to come back. Like, I didn't care, but like, it happened. Like, <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, Sadie Hawkins works. Somebody else has got their hand up. Oh, that's me. I think I forgot to lower it. Okay. Yeah, I wanted to ask if PD, PD is like a, a gas pedal that you can push. I'm sorry, can you repeat that? 
I wanted to ask if PT feels like a gas pedal that you can push. Well, yeah, you could use that analogy. Um, the the actual pity is coming from the realization that you've got it. It's something like happens on a football field when the touchdown is made and all the crowd cheers. You know how good they feel because they've done it. So that's what we have is pity. That pity is the feeling of got it. I got it. Ah, I got it. I got it. I got it. That's the feeling of pity. And so you can actually take that as an object of meditation of, of how wonderful success feels. Okay, then um, my question is like right now I'm very glad, but if I make like a slight effort, I can like rile myself, rile my, myself up a bit, then what is it? Yes, you can. That's the whole point. This is the teaching is you do have control over the way you feel. Why do you feel bad so much of the time when you could feel this good? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, Jeff, I think that you have some alternate questions about the Mahasi now that we've talked about it from one point of view. You said that you had a conversation with Dan Ingram. Okay, so how does what we've said so far today fits in with the questions that you have there with him? Um, hmm. Well, he was he was saying that from what I told him, he felt like I was in the, the so-called dark night stage of the Pasana. So he was he was suggesting that I take um I take an approach where I concentrate. I take a more of a field of view, um, more of a peripheral, as opposed to more of a content, as opposed to a concentrated state on, you know, the breath or or whatever. But to take a more peripheral view, because in the in the he was saying in, in the dark night stage, you're um, you sort of lose the center. It becomes kind of fuzzy. And all the action is on the periphery in regards to sensations. Okay, there's a couple of things that can be said about that. One is, is that everybody, uh, let us say, is raised with the delusion that we are something. We're me. And we have the delusion that that fixed me is kind of a fixed me. And so when we remember back to the time when we were, uh, let us say, in, in grammar school or in the first grade, everybody, I guess, can remember at their first grade. And when we remember the first grade and we remember who we are in the first grade, we kind of have the idea that that was me then. <laughs> in fact, there is nothing about that six-year-old that is who you are now. Nothing has changed. The only thing that you have are some big memories of that time. But all the cells of your body, all your memory systems, everything that that child of six wanted, you don't want now. And anything that you would want now, that sick child of six doesn't want those things. 
So we are not who we were when we were six years old. If we can figure that out, then we can recognize, wait a minute, we're faster, we're changing faster than, than that, that it didn't take 15 years for me to not be six years old, that when I was seven, I wasn't six years old. <laughs> and that things are changing pretty fast, okay? And so this old this idea of things beginning to fall apart is really just the meditator beginning to recognize that he's a crowd already, that he never was an individual, that he was always a crowd. And but and that that's kind of surprising to a people because they think something new is happening. No, everything that has been happening all along is still happening. You're just looking at it differently. And so we get this idea of disillusionment or a breaking up or uh, this is not me anymore. Uh, and that's a that's a good phase. Now, in the Mahasi method, that can be used as part of the dark night of the soul. Oh, no, what could become of me? Oh no, what's happened to now? But the um, uh, a better way of practice is to be able to see and know this stuff in advance. So when you do, in fact, uh, find a state of disillusionment or the breaking up, we can say, huh, finally, now I begin to really see the fact that I really am a crowd inside. So, uh, the next point that we can talk about then is that expansion. Once we recognize that we're not a center anymore, then we can, uh, let me give you an example like this. Uh, I'm going to use my index finger and the object of meditation is, is here. And normally what we do is, is that we're looking at the object of meditation this way with the mind just kind of wandering around, but at least we're pointing at the object as opposed to over there someplace. So now we've got the object of meditation and we're doing it like this. But as we get skilled, we begin to get the mind uh, focusing more so that it can just settle down, settle down, and then a little bit more, and then it can begin to touch the object. And once we've got it completely settled, then we can begin to draw it back. And this is the process that Dan is talking about, is the beginning to draw back once we've gotten the mind settled. But notice that the drawing back that we're doing now with the mind settled is not at all the same way that we started when we were not on the object, but we're just all over the place. Now we can draw back and uh, keep the mind settled and focused while we recognize that we're actually not just in our environment, we are a part of the environment. We are, in fact, the environment that we're in. That we become interconnected, that the, uh, where does the air start and the skin begin? This is part of the quality that we experience in the fourth jhana, is that disillusionment of the body, but we're doing it in a very, very systematic way as opposed to a haphazard kind of way. All right. Another way of thinking of it in the sense of Paticca Samapada is, is that at this stage, we're no longer in the step of perceiving and making sense out of stuff. We're just merely in sensory input. And so we feel, we can see, we can hear, and we're just part of the environment. 
but we're not trying to make sense out of it. Rather than in that regard, we're just enjoying the show. Scott, you got your hand up. Yeah. So, okay. So I have two questions. Um, the first one was very interesting to me, what you were saying before about the dark night of the soul. So uh, were you saying that the dark night of soul can be skipped over and is not necessary at all? Like, have you, did you go to through a dark night of the soul? Uh, hmm. Yes, I could say that I did go through a dark night of the soul. That's what caused me to leave the, uh, the Gawanka group. Okay, so that was, oh, you mean like you started your spiritual practice and then I'm talking about as a result of your meditation. Did you, okay. Right, so, and the reason for that is because both the Gawanka and the Mahasi come out of the Burma and that both of them are missing these two points. These two, actually, there are three points, but they're interrelated. And that is, number one, seizing the object, taking control of the object, managing the object, holding the object, grasping the object, making the object um, malleable, as opposed to merely noting. That's one point. Number two is the importance of the body. Just noting the breath is not enough. We have to actually be in the body. We have to see it from the inside, from the outside. We have to note it, to control it, to be able to uh, experience it. An example of that would be um, that when we're doing the breathing, we should be able to, um, <clears throat> let us say, clean the sinuses so that you can feel really, really beautiful about how good you can breathe, how open the sinus and the, the nose area is so that you can get so much air in all at the same time, which is different than what it feels like when your nose is clogged up, when you can't breathe well, like a cold. And so um, <clears throat> one of the things then that would be good for not just preparation for meditation before you sit down, but in fact, while you're sitting there from time to time is to make sure that you're cleaning out the sinuses. And you can do that by, first off, you would take a long, deep, strong, heavy in-breath to suck up all of the mucus that's in hanging around and get it as deep into the throat as you can like this. You know what that, right? And when you do that, you can feel all the mucus going to the back because you, back. okay? Now that you've got that mucus, you pull it down from behind by putting your tongue to the top of the uh, roof of your mouth and pull all of that stuff out of the sinuses into the throat and then you can either expel it or you can swallow it either way and then you and that fills that, the mouth with mucus right but then the next breath now breathe oh it feels so good to breathe because it's so open all that mucus that was preventing us from breathing Okay, so this would be a way of controlling the body to get that stuff open so that we can really enjoy taking deep breath. 
This is the kind of stuff they don't do in the Mahasi Mess because they're not interested in controlling the body. That leads me to my next question. Um, so I've never actually, um, at least to the best of my knowledge, I've never actually entered a jhana like intentionally. I bet you have. Well, maybe yeah, not may intentionally, but. Yeah, yeah, no, I've definitely entered a jhana, but I don't know if I did it on purpose. Um, and I didn't do it very many times, but I've been getting, you know, happier and happier and like my practice has been going well. So I was wondering, uh, is jhana a requirement for um, the spiritual path or awakening? Or um, is it kind of like some people are just better at them or and some people don't really need them or how's that okay the way that you're asking the question is putting magic into jhana jhana is not magic jhana oh. is a state of mind it's a human state of mind humans are capable of jhana or they wouldn't have it uh but it is a state of mind that you can get into it's a state of mind that we do it uh, often without noticing. Let me give you an example. Wait, 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 wait. One quick question, quick question. Um, if you're in a jhana, can you still be like talking and interacting with people or are you just totally absorbed, like your eyes are closed or? It depends upon the level of the jhana that in fact, everything in that regard is applied and sustained thought for the first jhana. In other words, people can talk and talk randomly and talk about this and then talk about that, talk about the weather and talk about cabbages and kings and candle wax and uh, sailing ships and all <laughs> over the place, all right? Or we can get onto the Dhamma and we're talking about the Dhamma and the Dhamma and the Dhamma, or we're talking about first jhana and first jhana and first jhana. First jhana. That's the distinction is, is that the mind that's all over the place would be like the Mahasi noting that you note this and you note that, you note this other thing and you note this over here and whatnot like that. And that keeps it as a dry meditation to where what we're talking about here is actually seizing that object and holding on to it for a while. Here's an example now about this. Everyone knows how to read. Right, you've learned your ABCs, you've learned the words, and now you can read. But most of the time when people are reading, their mind is not fit for work. So we look at something, we see a title of some article on the internet, and we start to read it. And after we start reading it, we begin to get some ideas of what they're talking about. And then we think about what we're, what we're reading. And now the eyes are following along of the page but we're not reading what the eyes are seeing. We're thinking about something that we've already said. So we get down to the bottom of the page and as we turn to the page and say, wait a minute, I don't even know what was on that page. Or maybe we get down to the next paragraph and say, wait a minute, I don't know this paragraph because I don't know the paragraph before. My eyes went over those words, but I didn't read it because my mind was thinking about something else. But there's another kind of reading. And you have done this kind of reading also, that you read something and when you read it, you know you've read it. And when you read the next sentence, you got it, you got it again. 
you read the next sentence, you know you've got it. When you get down to the end of the paragraph, you know you've got that paragraph. And then you start reading the next paragraph with knowledge and you know that you've got it and you know that you're following along with the reading. That would be considered a kind of a first jhana because you're staying on the topic. You're not jumping around in the mind. Okay, so that would be a good example then of the first jhana. Well, at least it's, it's got most of the factors of the first jhana, but it's missing a few things like pity and sukha, but at least it's got applied and sustained thought. And so now- that clears this, it up. Pardon? Yeah, that, may, that, that cleared a lot of it up. Like that makes a lot more sense now. Uh, okay. All right, so that that third item then is uh, missing. The first one is how important the body itself is. The second one is the able to seize the object. And now the third one is the one that's the most important that's missing in the Mahasi method in the West is one's right effort. The Eightfold Noble Path, right effort of changing the mind from the unwholesome thought into the wholesome thought. That's the one that's missing in the Mahasi method. That's why they are noting and having dark nights of the soul. If you are having wholesome thought after wholesome thought after wholesome thought, then where is fearlessness or fearfulness going to come from? If you're having wholesome thought after wholesome thought after wholesome thought, then where is misery coming from? If you're having wholesome thought after wholesome thought after wholesome thought, then where is the disgust coming from? So that's the question about the uh, the Mahasi method is, is that the reason why people go through those dark nights of the soul is because the mind hasn't gotten what it came there to do because it's missing these three qualities of how important the body is, how important it is to seize the object. And then the very seizing of the object is also the gladdening of the mind. That would be how you would seize the mind is by gladdening it, by talking yourself into feeling good. So these three things is what's missing in the, uh, the modern Mahasi method. But as far as I know, that was in the original teaching of Mahasi going back to about 1950 or so. That as Dan and I had discussed, it looks like that what happened with the Mahasi method as it was coming to the West was after Mahasi Saladal died, that Upandita took over and that he was more interested in taking over than he was in teaching correct Dhamma. And so this is what seems to have happened with the uh, the Mahasi method as it's come. Uh, and also there's a whole lot of Westerners who get really, really serious about their meditation practice. And so the Mahasi method lends itself very well to becoming very serious about your meditation practice. So where the Buddha doesn't talk about how serious it, that, that you can get. And in fact, we can think of that issue about serious is one of the major points that we can think of. Serious versus lighthearted. That the Mahasi method and the Western mentality, as well as like American politics, are yeah. serious 
How about Ukraine and Putin right now? That's serious. <laughs> I say serious and then I howl with laughter. <laughs> All right. But the quality of having a serious mind is uh, dukkha itself. Serious is dukkha. Yeah. And so we practice uh, the Western mind practices meditation in a serious way, which means they're actually creating more dukkha, not eliminating it. But the better way of doing it is by lightening up. Don't take things so seriously, especially your own self. <laughs> when we stop taking ourselves seriously. And and um, uh, there's a little joke of is to uh, I know it's a Catholic joke, but they say that angels can fly because they take themselves so lightly. Let's go on. Yeah. So if we lighten up, and the, how do we lighten up by seriously taking joy as an object of meditation? We seriously take gladdening the mind as an object of meditation. We seriously uh, become enthusiastic about the joy, about the pity, about the rapture. We grab these objects and we bring them together and get the mind really fit for work. And we know that it's fit for work. And so that's the major difference between the Anapanasati practice or the practice of the Buddha versus the practice of the uh, Western method of meditation. By the way, there's another one, the Vajrayana, which they call choiceless awareness. Now, that can be used in the sense of choiceless awareness because what we're aware of is the outside world. And that we can be choiceless about it and just let the show go on. But unfortunately, the beginners in that practice of choiceless awareness are not dealing with the world. They're dealing with the world here. And when they're dealing with the world here, that choiceless awareness to them means, oh, well, I feel miserable. Let me be aware of that. I'll be choicelessly aware. In other words, I'm very happy to be miserable. That doesn't make any sense. What's the I difference do. between that and when you feel overwhelmed and you just accept it and feel like it's going to go away when when you have the confidence that you can get back to sati? Ah, but why wait? When you feel overwhelmed, you can say, ah, oh, that is a feeling of overwhelmed. Do I feel overwhelmed while I'm taking a deep breath? Wait, wait, wait. Overwhelmed when I take a deep out breath. What is the feeling of overwhelmed? Why do I feel overwhelmed? You know, I don't have to feel overwhelmed. I can feel any way that I want to. And overwhelmed is not a particularly good feeling. I'll feel something like <laughs> that. <But> you said. <laughs> <laughs> you recommend it only to practice uh, a few times 10 minutes a day that means that for 23 hours i'm allowed <laughs> to not practice <laughs> so during, <laughs> during that time like i i'm you know in the world and i'm i feel disgusting things 
so what's the difference between like not being not practicing while really at, mm, practicing like a few times a day and getting overwhelmed and being miserable and what were you what you were talking about in the mahasi style meditating okay well one of the things that we can say then is is that the normal way one lives life finds things overwhelming in that right that we don't have to be in meditation to be overwhelmed i mean uh <laughs> Robert was just recently overwhelmed with traffic. He was stuck. So we're overwhelmed with all kinds of things. Things are, it, this is too much. So uh, the feeling of overwhelmed is a common, ordinary feeling. And now we're going to go practice. We're going to go practice Anapanasati. We're going to take 10 minutes. And we're going to practice feeling not overwhelmed. We're going to practice. I don't have to feel overwhelmed right now. This is my 10 minutes off. And I'm going to sit here and I'm going to enjoy feeling not overwhelmed. I'm going to feel whelmed, in fact. I'm going to feel uh, <laughs> Just enough whelm will do you. <laughs> And so by practicing just enough whelm will do you and everything is okay, and we get ourselves in that feeling of everything is fine, then we can go back into the world of being overwhelmed. But this time we don't automatically become overwhelmed. It takes a little while for it to become overwhelming. And then we go back to practice again and we practice. I'm whelmed now. I'm whelmed. I'm no longer overwhelmed. I'm underwhelmed. I'm okay. And then we go back into it again. And so over and over and over again, we go back and forth between, let us call it practice and performance. Practice and performance. We practice the piece until we get it right. Then we go out and we play it in public. Then we come back and we play it, you know, practice again, and then we come back and play it in public. This is the, the way of, of practicing. Does that answer your question about overwhelmed? Yeah, I mean, since I have a lot of free time, I would like to practice all the time, but you say I can't, so. Or that <laughs> I, I, I don't, I still don't understand, like, what's the harm in over-practicing in, in quotations, you know? Uh, over-practicing would be that it's too much, it's becoming overwhelming. <laughs> you see the contradiction. <laughs> and, so, and so there's a right balance in there. That's called the middle path. That in fact, a lot of students say tr they work too hard. They they're um, they, in other words, there's there's something out of balance, and one of the things that we have to balance is sati. Because if you have too much sati and too much sati, then you become overwhelmed because you keep remembering to practice and you recognize that I'm practicing wrongly. Okay, and so that's overwhelmed with it. But you have to balance the sati with the investigation, 
and the right effort and also that confidence, that shraddha. That's, that's part of the reasons why shraddha is on one of the five items on that group of things to balance, which is uh, that shraddha or the group balance is actually also on the Eightfold Noble Path, the same thing as the, um, the attitude of the Sama Sankapa. So we have to balance that, uh, that confidence so that we don't feel overwhelmed. What, overwhelmed? Yeah, I can handle overwhelmed. Nothing to it. Just whelmed with too much whelmed, that's all it is. <laughs> all we have to do is take a bit of whelm off and we're okay. <laughs> so, so we go with that over and over and over again. And we don't get overwhelmed because we're not practicing all the time. Because if you're practicing all the time, then that means you're seeing dukkha all the time. It's like um, you can imagine someone who is cleaning house. How much cleaning is cleaning? Okay, yeah. Okay. After you get the floors swept, now there's more dirt on the floor. You can mop the floor. After you get the more completely uh, mopped, now we can get on our hands and knees with a scrub brush and start scrubbing. And after we get that done, then we can take our magnifying glass out and a uh, 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 very, very fine sandpaper or maybe a rubbing cloth, and we can go over it again, deeper and deeper and deeper. This is what we would mean by practicing too much, when really all we need to do is just mop the floor. We don't have to go after every little thing that we can't expect to be mindful all the time, but we do want to be mindful at the time when we need it the most. And a lot of people have the idea within Anapanasati, oh, I've got to be mindful all the time. Well, that's how they get overwhelmed is because really what's overwhelming is they're recognizing that they can't be mindful all the time, that hindrances are going to keep coming back and keep coming back. And all they're seeing is those hindrances keep coming back because all they've got is the sati. But if they have the sati and the confidence that they can handle that and the, uh, the right effort to do it, then whenever the hindrance is seen, you say, oh yeah, there's that hindrance, never mind, out you go, and I'm back happy again. So we can practice as much as we want to, so long as we're continuing to practice correctly. What happens with students is, is that when they're practicing too much, that means that they're getting sloppy in their practice. That would be like a student who is playing the piano, but he wants to, uh, let us say, he's got greed for playing a lot of pieces. So he wants to play Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, and he wants to play the Revolutionary Etude, and he wants to play this uh, uh, Nocturne by Litz and all of that. And when he's playing one, he wants to play the other. And he never does even finish this piece of music and, and doesn't ever learn it because he's too busy trying to get the next one and the next one and the next one and he winds up being not very good at any of it. Which is how people will practice meditation also. So be sure that when we're grabbing an object, you grab it and you seize it and you play that particular piece of music until you get good at it. We're developing this thing as a skill and we have a whole lot of skills to develop. What are the skills to be developed? Well, 
we can go for it from the four noble truths and then we can go for it from jhana so sati is a skill um and we need, should pay attention to that developing that is a skill one's investigation to look because as the skill of investigation increases that means our ability to see what is dukkha and what is not dukkha will increase and all we need to do is identify it as dukkha we don't have to quickly go and take it apart and inspect it in great detail if it's a pile of shit throw it out don't have to go and look at every molecule of the shit to see that it's all shit <laughs> it's the whole pile of shit throw it out you know <laughs> And so that's the way that we practice into balancing these things. And then as we get the balance going, we can begin to practice more and more often so that we're alert quite a lot. And this is why we would want to practice five or six times a day is because then we can make some interconnections between those times and have just a moment or two of sati, a moment or two of joy. And then we go back to doing whatever we were doing, and pretty soon we begin to incorporate our joyful practice with our joyful activities during the day. And so then it becomes there's not much difference between what's practice and what's performance. And when we get good at both, then we just wind up playing through our life. Nothing much to do anymore. We're just having fun here, folks. <laughs> hey, okay. Yes. Who's got a hand up? Yes, hey. Alex. Yeah. <laughs> How's it going, everybody? Uh, Alex. So, uh, so I just wanted to share like a little bit about what my practice is like. See if you have anything to say about it. But um, what I've noticed is that the the experience of like a center or like a more solid me has it's like it's breaking up. It's really, really cool. So I can. Yeah, we just talked about that while you were not on. <laughs> Perfect. Well, I can feel like I'll, I'll feel the sensations of my body, right? So I can feel the the weight of my butt in the chair, and then I can feel uh, my hands. And what I start to notice is that all those sensations they like they merge to one center point like they're all like going on simultaneously and when i like let go into the feelings of the body like that i forget about practice i forget about anapanasati i forget about whether i'm gladdening the mind or not and i just find that i'm like staring like i'm on lsd <laughs> and i'm like feeling so good and there's no reason to feel good there's no reason not to feel like everything is just like blank. And I'm just finding like that I'm, I'm, I'm like hanging out more in that space. So I was just curious. Cause like, that's kind of, I think that's like, you're talking about seizing the object. I think that's like becoming the object for me. And I was just curious if you had anything to say about that. Yeah, that's okay. Enjoy. Okay. Enjoy. All right. Let's good. Do it. Good work, Alex. Let's nice. Nice program. Good job, hey. Alex. You did it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Alex, as you know, people have been watching you go through your stuff, and, and I'm glad to see that you're poking the hole in the surface now. <laughs> oh, man. This is freaking nuts. <laughs> I, like, I, go, I go outside, and it's like, whoa. 
It's like, what is this? It's just beautiful. <laughs> Everything is just great. There's and it's it's and you know the, the the greatest part is I'll be like, wait, what do I need to do? I need to do something, and then I'm like, no, I don't. And then there it is. <laughs> Satisfaction is there when I'm not looking for it. That's what I'm yes. noticing. Yes, that's the it's whole. There. What you've been developing it as a skill, and that means that it, it when you say it that way basically what you're saying is is every time you think of it it pops right back up because you've got that skill mm. okay mm. um let us say it's like this uh you've got something nailed down and so uh once it's been nailed down it takes a long time to pry it loose and then you're struggling to get it loose. But after it's loose, and then you just set it back down, the next time you go and grab it, it's like unbelievably easy to pick up because it's not nailed down anymore. Mm, very good. Yeah, that's exactly what it yeah, feels you like. Really pick yeah. this stuff right up. It's not nailed down or or you've got the skill or you've got the pump. So if you're very, very weak, I mean, I've seen uh, my daughter uh, struggle with something that the uh, mailman has has delivered he just hands it to her and when she gets it just oh it's so heavy and then when i bring when she hands it to me i was thinking wow it's so heavy because she saw it so heavy and it feels so heavy to her and they pick it up and nothing to it (laughs) (laughs) okay so this is how it begins is that things feel really heavy and hard work but you can Mm -hmm. do it but as the skills developed, all of a sudden, this is a piece of cake. This is easy. Mm-hmm. It really is easy to feel good. Why do we, Why did it take so hard, so long for me to figure out that it was actually so easy to do? Mm-hmm. Um, Damaratha, with your analogy, um, would hammering the nail um, further in be akin to thinking unwholesome thoughts? Yes, exactly. That that's that's what uh, unwholesome thoughts are. They're coffin nails. Mm-hmm. Just more things to carry around, more burdens to hang on to, more difficulties. That's what an unwholesome thought is. And one wholesome thought after another wholesome thought after another wholesome thought is called worry. One wholesome thought after another wholesome unwholesome thought under and another unwholesome thought accompanied by feeling bad about those unwholesome thoughts that's called anxiety and all we really need to do is just get into the habit of changing our thoughts from unwholesome to wholesome thoughts and that's what the practice is all about and yes, every I- time uh, i was just, i was just gonna say robert every time i can only see this now in retrospect but every time even though it doesn't feel like it you uh, lift up that nail a little bit with the hammer. It's actually loosening the. It's loosening the nail. It's loosening the root structure that's holding in place that repetitive pattern of unwholesome thoughts. It may not feel like it in the moment of noticing the unwholesome thought, but that's what's actually happening. So the more and more you do it, you look back and you're like, "Whoa, the nail's out! Oh my god!" <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now you can think. In fact. There is a Pali word, and the Pali word is asava. Have you ever heard of the the Pali word asava? It's not the same word as kilesa. Kilesa actually means the fetter or a bondage like handcuffs or sandbags. 
but the word asava is actually referred to as a canker, an outflow, and that we can think of it as kind of pimple popping. In other words, this is dermatology for the mind. And that one of the things that we have to do is we have to go and identify that pimple, that unwholesome thought, and we have to squeeze on it and mash it, right? Well, some pimples are ready to pop and our blackheads are ready to come out and others are not. But if you keep bashing on some of those that are not, then that will get them ready so that the later they will pop. Mm, okay, so and so great. this basically one wholesome, unwholesome thought after another is very much like, you know, finding a blackhead, out it comes. And, and you keep pulling these blackheads out of the face, keep washing the face, and pretty soon you don't have a place full of blackheads anymore. But it's like one at a time. Yes, Scott. Oh, okay. Um, uh, I was going to ask a question. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, about uh, laughter. Like, like when you go into like a like a laughing fit or something, or like you can't stop laughing. Like, is that like a jhana? Like, what is that? Like, is that like, because sometimes I've had like, like, something just so funny. Like, it's so funny that it's just, it's like almost like, transcendently funny where you're like you open up like completely and you're just like laughing and it's just like it feels like like a cosmic like it just it feels some it, it feels more spiritual than like normal laughter like i don't know how to explain it well um <clears throat> actually you have probably heard that uh the universe is just one cosmic joke and you yeah that's a punchline <laughs> You're the one who keeps getting punched. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when we recognize that you are the punchline, that's hilarious. And so um, uh, there's a question, though, about it. When you, you use the term, you can't stop. The question is, one, why would you want to? Are you in the back of the class and the teacher is up in there telling you to grim up and be quiet? <laughs> yeah, I've been, I've been there. <laughs> okay, so there's that kind of thing. But normally the question would be, if you are feeling that good, why stop? Yeah. Because in our culture, you're not supposed to feel that good. Everybody else is jealous and they don't like it. I yeah, mean, the teacher true. wants them to, all the students to pay attention to him. And when everybody is howling with laughter, the teacher's not getting any of that kind of juice. But me, I like it when everybody's howling with laughter. That means, ah, my success. <laughs> <laughs> my joke worked that time. <laughs> and so, yes, the question is, why would you want to stop laughing? Hmm. Why would you mm -hmm. want to stop? I have another question. So that just you just made me think of that. So it's almost like other people see it as weird to be this happy. Like uh, so, it can, uh, like they they like in uh, awkward situations. Like maybe like someone dies. Like someone in my family uh, is close dies. <laughs> which um, and but it's like 
I'm still like happy. Like, I, like nothing can stop me from being happy. So, but it's like, it's almost yeah. like, in a, it's that's almost right. Like you know, you're absolutely correct. Why in the world should we be in this group having fun when Putin's in Ukraine? <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. We're all crying and miserable. We've got trouble yeah. on this planet. We got trouble in River City. For shame, you guys. <laughs> yeah, so our culture is such that we're not supposed to be having a party all the time. We're supposed to be at work. The bosses, they want some money. They've got to put you to work. They're not supposed to be happy in our culture. What would happen if everybody was happy? I mean, can you imagine on a, on on election day, on voting day, and everybody is having <laughs> so much of a part of it, don't bother to go vote? <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> what? Me worry? What? Me vote? I don't care about voting. I'm having too much fun. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there's like a, an empathy thing to that. Like, if you're with a person that's uh, suffering, that's like really lost a, a loved one, and it's really caught up in that, you can't be like smiling and laughing. You know, you have to get in the mood well if it's well done if it's well done your job in fact if you understand the four brahma viharas including mudita metta karuna mudita upeka yes there is karuna in the sense that we can have compassion for that person who is miserable but that compassion immediately turns into trying to cheer them up hey they do not have to be in that pity party just because yeah. they've fallen overboard, I don't have to go jump overboard with them. I can yeah. throw them a lifeline and pull them back ashore. Or back oh, that's on my the question. Boat. Yeah, we yeah, can cheer somebody else just because they're miserable doesn't mean that they have to stay miserable. I mean, you can start cracking jokes at a funeral if you know how to do it. Yeah, true. <laughs> you just got to be good. You got to be good, like good with it. Like I, it, it works sometimes. Like. Sometimes if you get people laughing in the at dark moments, it can help. It helps a lot. It does. Right. Gets them out of their misery. Gets them out of their dark spot. I mean, I can't think of better things for people in Mahasi Method doing a dark night of the soul business other than <laughs> taking a big belly laugh. Oh, I see that dark night of the soul. Wow, I really feel miserable, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, Damarado, I was going to tell you, um, when I was experiencing those sensations, like I was saying today, and just being in the body, a lot of times sensations of what we would call normally anxiety would come up, but I didn't see it with as much significance and with as much anxietyness. It was just yeah, like right. anxiety, there's nothing to it through <laughs> a hologram. Yeah. And it was actually kind of enjoyable almost. It was like, whoa anxiety <laughs> yeah i can handle that too yeah i know what anxiety is I'm yeah <laughs> yeah and that's exactly what happened it was like oh all right all right all right <laughs> <laughs> so we've been going at it now for about an hour and a half i really have enjoyed this i mean this has been a real chuckle fest i really like this so yeah uh, I think that it would be good if we can finish now. Jeff, did we get your Mahasi method 
Uh, I'm sure that there were other questions, but you haven't chimed in with them. You've been quite quiet. I was expecting you to really grill me on this stuff. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, covered well, and uh, I'm on board. I'm on board for what you're doing. So uh, I'm sorry. What'd I'll you say? say? I say I'm I'm totally on board with what you're saying and uh, what you're suggesting. So. Um, I don't think any grilling was necessary. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yes, the um, there is so much good about the the Mahasi method that's practiced in the West. People do get good benefit from it. I'm not against it. A way of thinking about it is is that why should a uh, well-educated, uh, let us say, a college professor of mathematics who is really good in a particular area, let us say, numerical analysis, and he's really, really into precisions and floating points and all that kind of stuff. Why would he bother to criticize a first or second grade teacher who is teaching only integers or, uh, to teach children beginning algebra and well, I didn't algebra, just simply numbers and arithmetic. Right? That if the child can't learn arithmetic, he's not going to be ready for numerical analysis. And so the professor does not have to criticize the first grade teachers for teaching first grade. People got to start someplace, and the Mahasi method is an excellent place for people to get started. It's just missing a few pieces, like a dust bowl. <laughs> and so we can't criticize the Mahasi method, even the way that it's taught, because it's got so much good stuff in it. It's just missing a few pieces, that's all. And when we add those missing ingredients, we can see that all the Mahasi method is no, no problem with it at all. We can be friends with it. Um, I don't know if you want to get into it. Was if someone goes to a clinical retreat. As an example, what changes would you suggest they make when they're there? Those back to three those, Make sure that your object that you seize the object. Whatever object it is, in Anapanasati, we've got 16 objects to seize. More than that, in fact. But uh, when we seize the object, most of the objects that we seize is to develop a skill of that object. Like seizing the object of sukha is to develop the feelings of sukha. That's not in the Mahasi method, that, that point about seizing the object. The other one is the value and importance of the body that everything is, uh, and the breathing, uh, that's kind of passed over with the um, Mahasi method. And that the third one and the most important one is that issue of one's right effort to gladden the mind. If you can remember those three and put all of those, just those three new ingredients into the Mahasi method, it will transform that Mahasi method into something much more valuable and useful. There was one thing that I wanted to 
bring up kind of like a question that I think some other people were struggling with. And that was kind of um, the, the issue that I noticed was reason. It seems like reason is a, a really big um, crime of the mind, so to say. So a lot of people were mentioning how, you know, uh, society and reality kind of we've come to associate reality with suffering or negativity and lack of control. And so reason tells us that we shouldn't be happy. And so when a lot of people mentioned that, you know, I'm not happy and they don't challenge it, it seems like reason is telling them that I shouldn't be happy. And so, like, for example, we let's go back to the example of the, the funeral. Reason would tell us that, you know, it's not reasonable to be happy at a funeral. And so I think a lot of people were kind of subconsciously mentioning this block of the of the reason or rationality. And so. <clears throat> Essentially, if we're practicing on Upanasati, we're practicing how to be happy beyond reason. We're choosing to be happy. We're no longer being happy when it makes sense or when it's reasonable and rational to be happy. So I think I noticed uh, an issue that some people are having, and I too, it's a common thing, right? So a common thing that we're noticing is that how are we supposed to balance this ability to be happy beyond reason with this principle of reason that seems to govern a lot of our lives? You know, how do we balance reason and a happiness that def that defies reason? Okay, well, the word reason itself implies cause and effect. Why did this happen? There was a reason for it. There was a cause for it. There was a conditionality for it. That was the reason. That's what we mean by reasoning. So. The idea then is, is that perhaps the problem with reasoning is, is that we don't have all the input data. We don't know all the various causes. And because of that, operating with only a few of the causes, that reasoning is, is then it's, uh, it is okay to be unhappy. For instance, uh, somebody died, we're having a funeral, and that's all the uh, the information that we have. And so there's no reason now to be happy at a funeral. But if you can add some new reasons or uh, add some new data, like I'm really happy to see somebody uh, at the funeral. I'm glad to see them. OK, so we can add new. Uh, let us say pieces of information to come up with our result. And so that's what's missing actually in Western society is a lot of the things that could be reasons to make us happy are not factored in when they could be. Your choice, always your choice, and your choice would be reason enough to be happy. Yes. Why do you have to get a hundred dollars in order to be happy or a million dollars to be happy? I can be happy without a hundred dollars. I don't have to have a reason to be happy other than I've got a choice. That's my choice to be happy. So we kind Excuse of end me. up praying to this altar of reason because we're from a Western society and we've been told that uh, science and reason is the epitome and we should all listen to reason and science. But essentially, we're kind of overlooking. Essentially, I think what a lot of people do is, and kind of what you're mentioning, is that we just overlook. Uh, we just kind of, when I say pray to the altar of reason, what I mean is that we don't examine the reasoning of things. We just kind of 
you know, if it, if it makes sense and it seems reasonable, people just accept it. And kind of what you're pointing to is that we have the ability to examine the reasoning and add our own reasoning. Essentially, that's what makes it reasoning is because we think it makes sense. And so we begin to subconsciously kind of adopt things that other people say that make sense and we kind of overlook our own reasoning. And so re really what we're doing is we're trying to dig back in to the things that we maybe once saw as reasonable and reestablish what we should think of as reasonable. So another way of saying it then is, is that the reason that many people use or the reasoning system they use is merely a set of rules. Uh -huh. Okay, and the rules then determine the reasons and then the reasons give you the results to where in fact you don't have to follow those rules. You can invent your new rules. You can make your rules own rules and conventions. Mm -hmm. It's ultimately isn't it? I part of Dhamma is, is becoming unbound from cultural conditioning. Right, to mm -hmm. let go of the cultural conditions because the culture's conditions have been making everybody unhappy. You could do that on yeah. your own. Uh, <laughs> yeah, guys, it's, it's getting kind of late. Why don't we go ahead and finish <laughs> this up? This has been a really enjoyable. Uh, I mean, wow, we've had a lot of reason to be happy today. <laughs> <laughs> it's been great. Thanks, everyone, for your acknowledgement and recognition of my progress. I really, really appreciate you. Boy, I, um, haven't yes, this is all about Sangha. We need to get a group of going to uh, the friends. Yes. yes. We can help each other that way. Yes, we got it. Afterwards. Yeah, guys. So let's, stay, let, let's keep the, the comments. I'm really pleased with what's happening on Skype with uh, uh, the Sangha US and the Sangha UK. A lot of good comments. Uh, Robert's already left, but I would like to congratulate Robert Cohen for all of the uh, uh, research that he's done and posting all of those uh, images and whatnot like that from Titnahan and everywhere like that. So you guys are mm. really long. I'm really pleased with our budding little saga here. Thank you all so much. Thank you. you make me cry. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Aw. Okay. Good to cry. <laughs> Bye. All right, guys. See you later. Thanks so much. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye, folks. Bye-bye. Bye, don't have to.